You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Very warm welcome to you, especially if you're joining us for the for the first time. Um, we recently, just to give you the context, we recently started a series I'm calling um, Kingdom First. In Matthew 6, verse 33, it says this. It says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. And within this series, um, I'm, I'm doing like a mini-series specifically focusing on relationships. What does it mean to live kingdom first relationships? And uh, we're a few weeks into that now. If um, I, w- I just want to say this is a series, and I'd encourage you to watch the ones you've missed online because it will link them together. This, we're on a journey. These are not standalone um, talks. They, they, they link together. But I've, I've always loved that Jesus told stories. He told stories to help us understand, to explain what he was, what he was trying to, to say and to illustrate the point that he was making. And this week I was pondering, do I have a story that really encapsulates what I'm, I'm trying to talk about today? And I ended up in a conversation with my neighbor on Tuesday and he told me a story and I said to him straight away, mate, I'm nicking that. That is perfect. Um, and I'm going to share it with you this morning. So he was telling me that there was a workman who was leaving a factory after a day's work and he's pushing a wheelbarrow out of the factory. And inside the wheelbarrow is this small package and as he leaves the 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 kind of the factory entrance and exit point there's a security guard he not only controls who comes in and out but also just makes sure nobody's stealing anything so this security guard stops this guy and he says what's in the wheelbarrow and he, he says well I've got a small box and this box is you know it's I don't know 25 by 40 centimeters something like that just a small little thing and the security guard says well i can see it's a small box but what's in the box and he says well you know the the sawdust on the floor at the end of the the day when we've all done our work it's swept up and it's thrown away i've put it in this box and uh, i need it at home for a few things so i'm taking it home and the security guard says to him well open the box and he opens the box and it's sawdust so the guy lets him go and the same thing happens on the Tuesday and the same thing happens on the Wednesday and the same thing happens on the Thursday. So on the Friday, he's, he's pushing the wheelbarrow again out and inside the wheelbarrow is this small box and it's the same security guard. And the guard stops him and says, it's you again. And uh, what have you got in the wheelbarrow? And the guy says, I've, I've got the same box that I had the other four days that you stopped me and, and checked. And the security guard says, well, I open the box. He opens the box and it's sawdust. And the security guard says to him, I can see it's sawdust. And it's been sawdust every other day that I've stopped you. But I've just got this nagging feeling. I've just got this suspicion that you're stealing something. So I tell you what, how about you tell me what you're stealing and I promise I'm not going to report you. I just need to know out of curiosity. And the guy says, all right, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> Genius. You know, it made me chuckle. I doubt it's true. I've, I've searched it since on YouTube and found a few people telling a, a similar story. But the, the point I want to make is that, that we, that you and I, 
sometimes we get so preoccupied with the detail, with the small box, that we miss the bigger picture, that we lose sight of the bigger picture. And um, Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Today, my hope is that we're just going to widen the viewfinder, that we're going to elevate our vision for relationships, to have to have a kingdom mindset when we consider and look at relationships. And I want to do that today specifically in the context of, of marriage. Now, as I mentioned, if you're, if you're joining us for the first time, this is part of a series. This would make more sense if you watched the series and understood the context of the series. But ultimately, I believe we're called to live as family. Paul says in a passage in Corinthians that we reflected on in previous weeks that both being married and not being married are good conditions to be in. We can't place more emphasis on one than the other. Jesus is the only spouse that can truly fulfill us and God's family is the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy us in the way that he says and intended. Now, we desperately need wisdom in each stage of life that we find ourselves to not only love God, but to live obediently to God. So let me jump in quite quickly today, if I can. At the climax of the Genesis account that we find in the Bible of creation, we see God bringing together a man and a woman to unite them in marriage. The Bible begins with a wedding, the wedding of Adam and Eve, and it ends in the book of Revelation with another wedding of Christ and the church. See, marriage is God's idea. It certainly has elements of a human institution that reflects the character and the particular human culture in which it's embedded. But the concepts and the roots of marriage are God's idea. It's his action. And therefore, what the Bible says about God's design on marriage is crucial to our understanding of it. If God, sorry, if God invented marriage, then those who enter into it should make every effort to understand and to submit to his purposes for it. It's hard to get, I would say, a good perspective on marriage. We also easily see it through what is an inevitably a distorted lens of our own experience. If you came from what you might term a stable home where your parents have a great marriage, they made it look quite easily easy. You could reflect that that um, you could reflect on marriage and you may be shocked to realize that actually it takes quite a lot of time and effort and investment to forge a lasting relationship. On the other hand, if you experienced marriage that was more volatile, potentially um, a divorce, either as a child or an adult, your, your view of marriage may be overly guarded and potentially at times have elements of quite a pessimistic mindset. I, I would certainly say that was my personal experience. Why, why bother? Why bother getting married? All, all, of, all of the pain that's going to come when it doesn't and it's not going to work out. That would certainly have been the view that I carried into my late teens. You may find yourself, therefore, overly expectant of relationship problems. And when they do appear, you're ready to say, well, here, here goes, as I expected, and we're ready to give up. In other words, any kind of background or experience of marriage could make us ill-equipped for marriage itself. Unfortunately, 
many modern followers of Jesus have been deeply formed by the surrounding culture. So they've come to see their relationships and marriages purely on individualistic terms. Their marriages are things that are perceived as solely for their own benefit rather than existing also for the sake of the church and for the church's witness then to the world. It's no wonder that Christian relationships are often not as clearly distinguishable from the large and the setting of the, the culture around us. I, I want to say this morning, we need a vision for relationships. We need a vision for marriage that seeks first the kingdom of God above all else, that lives righteously, and then he gives us everything we need. Not everything we want, but everything that we need. In the Bible, I would say we have a teaching that is tested by millions of people over centuries and multiple, multiple cultures. Do we have any other resource on marriage quite like it? Unless you're able to look at marriage through the lens of the Bible instead of through our own fears, potentially, or our own romantic invention or our own particular experience or through culture's often very narrow perspective, we often then don't make wise decisions or our own marital future or the implications of living together as we seek to be a family that is seeking to live kingdom first lives. Now, the danger of anything like this in the short space of time that we have is that we take a passage in the Bible and we don't do it justice or we completely misrepresent what it's trying to say. I'm not going to try and do that, but equally, this is not going to be a five-hour talk. For those of you that are visiting, you'll be glad of Well, everyone will be glad of that. We've all got an eye on lunch. Anyway. Side point, it's Everton Crystal Palace, no one's bothered about that, but we're still, we're still not going to do a five-hour talk. But what, what we have time for, I think, is hopefully just a few reflections that are going to stir us, that will provoke us to get our eyes a bit wider than just the small box and realise that there's a wheelbarrow. No, not, not that, but actually to encourage us. I want to encourage us. I want to encourage us to reflect, to, to take an overview, to look again, to consider what it is to have a biblical marriage, to have a kingdom first mindset when it comes to marriage. Now, we don't have the time for the whole passage, but I'm just going to jump in fairly quickly to Ephesians 5 and, and read from verse 25. I'll bust the lectern, so I'm down here. But it says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and cleaned, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. For the scriptures say a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, there's loads in there, loads to ponder, to unpick. Sociologists have, have observed that today's radical 
individualism that many of us see around us has become quite cancerous is the word they use, undermining the very significance that we seek by cutting us off from meaningful relationships and broader social commitments. I read this this week. It said, it is an influential cultural illusion that implies we can and must come to our deepest beliefs in the isolation of our private selves. This has led to the endemic notion that love and marriage primarily have to do with personal gratification a notion that has stripped relationships of their traditional social function of providing people with stable, committed contexts that tie them into larger society. What, what's that saying? What's that really saying, I think, is that culture is teaching us to seek pleasure rather than covenant. You know, a, a covenant creates a particular kind of bond that is, is disappearing in our society. It's a relationship that is far more intimate and personal than it is merely legal or a business relationship that at, at the same time it's far more durable and binding and unconditional than one that is based on feelings and affection alone the bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to one another to prefer each other to humble yourselves, to serve one another, to cherish, to, to defend, to protect, to honour one another. That, that really means that love fundamentally is more action than it is emotion. You know, Christian marriage has a, a, a very different genetic makeup. It's built on a covenant. Imagining Jesus' love for the church. When we're, we're called not only to seek deep friendship, intimacy, and companionship, but to give ourselves in faithful love. Christian marriage is a covenant entered into sacrificially within and for the benefit of the church. It's not only within a committed community of faith that our intimate relationships can be properly supported, but also find their ultimate purpose. So if that's gobbledygook, what have I, what have I just said? Basically, a kingdom first marriage, I think, needs to hold together a couple of things. Firstly, you're not in it for you. You're not in it for you. The, the passage says for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Amazing. Culture teaches us the me, me, me thinking. My needs, my wants, my demands. The Bible teaches us the opposite, prefer and defer, prefer and defer. Paul expresses this stunning conviction, really, that Christian marriage should stand as a living metaphor for self-giving love between Christ and his church. God gives us a glimpse of the future. He whets our appetites through our present experiences and relationships. We're meant to hunger for the ultimate goal. For only then will we taste life and marriage in all of its fullness. Christ died for the church to save it. A husband should be willing to die to his personal needs and desires for the good of his wife. That's no small statement. Christ makes the church holy. A husband should be willing to do whatever he has to do that his wife might be a strong woman of God. You know, a man... 
approaches marriage on the basis of one who approaches marriage on, on the basis of what it can do for himself misses the true nature of what this really is all about. Jesus loves the church as himself. A husband should think of his wife as part of himself, not just as someone who happens to be somebody living with him and, you know, has a very separate life, but as himself. One of the greatest expressions and of love and commitment to God is is really one to each other to show a willingness to change, to become better versions of ourselves, to ultimately become more like Jesus, to make a commitment to change attitudes and behaviours, to better ourselves. I think we have a freedom to choose that, to choose to change, to choose to grow, develop day by day. I, I think that's hard. That kind of change is hard. It's nearly impossible without the grace of God. But it's also one of the most powerful signs of love in a marriage, selfless, sacrificial love. Our model for living exists outside of ourselves. And, do you know, that is actually really good news. As we continue to change, as we become more and more like Jesus in every aspect of our lives, not only do we get the benefit of our own personal change, we also get to be the beneficiaries of each other's change. Imagine being married to somebody that, regardless of you, every day is seeking to be a better person. Why would you not want that? That's a win for everyone. You know, when, when we got married, one of the, the many things that Steph was yet to discover about me was, was my breakdown in relationship with Hoover's. And um, basically everything Hoover related... Um, first Hoover we we had when we got married, I, I hoovered over the cable and uh, I cut it clean in half. I don't know if anyone's done that. I think that's quite hard to do even with a lawnmower. But the second Hoover we had, I had one of the, we had one of those upright ones, you know, you know the ones? And um, Steph came home, she opened the door as I was like hoovering flat to the ground because I'd managed to permanently snap it in the... Well, I don't, I don't know what I'd done really, but... I was I was just totally horizontal going around the house, which was a bit odd. But I, I've got to say, please give me credit for my commitment to hoovering. So the third hoover, on this occasion, I'm upstairs hoovering, just to remind you I'm still hoovering. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> Steph's downstairs, and the next thing, hearing the commotion, she looks out the window to see the hoover flying out of the window, uh, landing in the middle of the back garden, because I've set it on fire. One of her tops may have been on the floor, which I couldn't be bothered to pick up, and um, hoovered over it, got stuck in the motor and caught fire. That's just the first year of hoovering in marriage. You'll be glad to know we celebrate 13 years of being married, and I've not broken another hoover since. Actually, 13 years on Monday night. There you go. Leicester are playing Arsenal. That's going to be a test. <laughs> Live on Sky. Anyway, back to the point. Um, Trivial example, but, you know, we've got to be a people that are committed to change. Commit to change. Don't We're people that so often just throw in the towel so easily. Marriage is one of the most powerful tools for personal formation. It forces us to put aside our singular ambitions. It establishes a pattern of self-emptying and faithfulness that extends to our children, to the church, and beyond. But also marriage isn't an end in itself. 
we're not supposed to spend ourselves searching for the chosen one and when we find them withdraw and spend our lives on a desert island just enjoying each other's company we're supposed to use this newfound partnership to forge ahead with kingdom purpose now don't hear me wrong i'm not saying neglect your marriage i'm not saying don't take your marriage seriously but i'm saying that that partnership is supposed to further and to extend the kingdom i i don't know if i could emphasize that more strongly Honestly, that's the whole point of this series, that we understand and we realize the bigger picture, that we're supposed to be kingdom first people. In the light of all of that being said, these, these responsibilities, Christian marriage is a serious and risky undertaking. The idea of binding ourselves for all time in sickness and in health, richer or poorer, it's like standing at the foot of a great mountain. We should feel both phenomenal exhilaration, but also the revered gravity of the journey that we're embarking on. In making this commitment and walking purposefully within it, we reflect the God who has bound himself to us for all times. It's no wonder then that faithful Christian marriages are some of the most important witnesses of the gospel in our culture in a world where sex and love has become so cheap and devalued we must take seriously the view that marriage and the church share a mutually reinforcing relationship so that marriage is central to the faith community and the witness to the world while the church provides the necessary scaffolding to sustain each marriage we need to provide the necessary supports for marriages in each stage of their journey within the church family. Honestly, we will not quietly just accept the inevitable breakdown of marriage without fighting for their survival by investing time, resources, material, emotional and logistical needs that need to be ploughed into marriages for them to survive and thrive. We, we need to be people that are attentive to the warning signs, coming alongside those with loving care. I think this is a critical task for the community of faith as we live out our mandate to be family. Although marriage offers many wonderful benefits, we also need to be aware of the huge challenge at the heart of marriage, the task of weaving together two different stories, personalities, family backgrounds and many other things that you could add to that list all of which is costly and cannot be taken lightly children i think are a remarkable gift and blessing but they also present quite a unique fresh twist to that dynamic i've heard it said if marriage is like an earthquake that shakes our world the demands of young children are more like a city leveling tsunami you know i'm not i'm not seeking to speak negatively about that just that we need wisdom we need commitment primarily marriage is the coming together of two very different people before we got married i had three drawers for my socks you know three fairly large drawers it might seem quite excessive to some of you but in my defense i had I had work socks, summer socks, winter socks, trainer socks, football socks, formal and informal socks, and occasion socks and holiday socks. And um, 
which is a side note for those of you that know me well, you know, I don't even like wearing socks, so I'm not really sure what that's about. But forgive me if I sound obsessive about socks, but Steph brought it to my attention that I perhaps had slightly more socks than I needed and free drawers wasn't required. I've got to be honest, I really did find that process of refinement quite painful. And initially, I kind of secretly just parted with them to the loft. But my free drawers soon became actually half a drawer. And um, I also had this everything in there drawer. Has anyone got one of those where basically it's like having your shed in your house? And uh, old batteries that don't work, snap pencils, bit of unsticky blue tack, expired passport. I tell you these because these are genuine things on my list. Um, useless matches, padlocks with the key missing, phone charger for a Nokia, Nokia 3210. Some of you don't even know what one of those is. Every lanyard from every conference you've ever been to, the Union Jack, just in case we do win the World Cup one day, and a couple of 13-amp fuses that are blown. You, you know, that it's all the stuff that you will potentially need one day. After a brief period of time of being married, that drawer became a shoebox. And that shoebox moved to the loft. And when we moved house, I don't know where that box has gone, but it didn't make it. A super trivial example. But in all honesty, being married, our personalities, our stories, our family backgrounds, many other things that you'd add to that list come together. I read this this week and it, it kind of nails it for me. As a follower of Jesus, marriage can only be sustained if there remains a clear understanding of the role it plays within the community that created it in the first place, the church. The command for married people to love each other must be based on something beyond the self-enhancement or emotional fulfillment of each person. Honestly, that's gold. I would bear personal testament to those that have stood alongside us, cheered us on, for those that have shown us what marriage could be, that have walked through us with, through the hurts and the pains of life, that have spoken into areas of opportunity and potential growth. This, this isn't a life stage thing. This is a family thing. People that have stood alongside Steph and I when we face loss, when we've grieved, when we've been ill, when we've celebrated moments of life and special occasions. This is about being family. Do you know, I've, I've told some of you this before, but it's still happening, so I've got to tell you again. When we planted this church a couple of years ago, a, a couple joined us very early on. I, I'm fairly sure it was the first time we ever did a gathering. Every week, every week, without fail, they've emailed Steph and I just to encourage us. Just to spur us on, just to tell us the for us. Do you know, in fact, I tell you, it nearly makes me cry because they did it last night. Never asking for anything, not speaking into anything, purely just to say, I'm for you, I'm with you, and we're praying for you. You know, honestly, we are so grateful. I've got to tell you, you are created for family. You're not created to do this alone. If your marriage struggles, you're not meant to be doing this alone. In the various life stages, culture tells us, do it alone. Honestly. Go into the cave. That's what culture says. Do it alone. When you get married, do it alone. When you have children, withdraw from normal life. Withdraw from the, the church family. Take a season out. The demands are so huge. Take a step back. Honestly, don't. 
don't do it. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and everything will be added that you need. One of the most effective ways to teach young Christians moral skills and discernment is to connect the generations within the church. You know, if the Christian life is a progressive story, it is critical for us to pull resources, to pull the experiences and the wisdom of those at different stages on the journey. This, this is particularly important with regard relationships because our culture places such a high priority on youth and short-term fulfillment. Within that context, can I say to those that are in the later stages of life, and can, can I say that? I don't mean that offensively. I don't mean that patronisingly. I don't want to lump you into later stages of life. I'm not sure what that even means. But as a generation, I want to say you provide significant perspective and wisdom to those on the way. The wisdom, perspective, the honesty, the prayer, the example, the encouragement. We need it to be family. It is a genuine tragedy that this rich interplay between the generations at times is fought against. We focused instead on the consumerist categories of peer group ministry keeping generations separately honestly not if we're family john eldridge calls that season of life the sage whereby you can offer wisdom and experience that only come from living through the many stages of life that you have can i say two things about it firstly younger generations you need this step forward and take it Honestly, seek out those that will support you, that will encourage you and speak wisdom into your life. And I want to say, later generations, don't back off. Do not back off. Just because people have rebuffed you, not accepted it, not wanted it, do not back off. The church needs this to be the family that it's called to be. You know, marriage, I've alluded to this a couple of times. Marriage is a covenant relationship. We've got to fight for marriage. And we need those alongside us that will fight with us for marriage. What I've seen reflected in our culture is there are too many relationships that break up. I've often heard it said in the media, a phrase that's banded around so quickly as a reason for, for divorce is, Irreconcilable differences. Have you heard that in the media? Are we not the people of God? God is a God of reconciliation. Within the kingdom of God, we're supposed to be people whose target is reconciled relationships. Good relationships within the community of faith are about living in our future destiny now. We can't be casual just watching the breakup of Christian marriages with genuine but with resigned sadness. Within the church, we seek to resist and to rise above the modern acceptance of that, surely. Jesus' work of atonement involved reconciling or putting back together fractured relationships, our relationship with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with creation. We seek to embody that through the ongoing reconciliation as a community of faith, as the first fruits of the kingdom of God. We've got to fight for this. We've got to fight for marriage. 
We've got to fight for it as a family. How are we being family? How are we fighting for marriages collectively as a church? When I said that um, in a previous week I spoke about singleness, I said um, we should look for how we can champion people's life stages. If someone who is single has a major life event, will we stand with them in it when they get a new job? Will we stand and celebrate them? Will we help them move house and so on? Surely it's the same for marriage. You don't have to be married to fight for the best in somebody else's marriage, to fight for that marriage to be all that it could be. We need to think and to act like family. Our responsibility as family is to reach into people's lives and say, you're important to me. You are important to us. We're family and that looks different to the culture of the world. Paul makes a startling claim about marriage. He suggests that it can reflect the love between Christ and the church. Phenomenal. In our mutual love and responsiveness to each other, we become embodied examples of the gospel. In terms of discipleship, we need to teach the Christian vision of marriage and relationships. It's not just a future reality, but it's an expression of the future made present, even if at times imperfectly. But only with that strong vision in place will we resist the, the fragile modern mindset that we find in culture. As, as we prepare to land this morning, which basically means I'm nearly finished, don't panic. I think it might be helpful, I hope it is, if I just share a few reflections on sex. You know, it is an ordained act of union between committed lovers that points towards our bonding with God himself. It is little wonder that the enemy has sought to belittle and empty sex of its depth and its significance and in the process sought to rob marriages of all that God intended. The role of sex as a bonding agent among lovers as a, and as a sacramental window into the kingdom of heaven makes it a key battleground for Christian formation. I think there is an ever-present pressure in our culture to be unfaithful and to go in search of new excitement. God would have as God not only our outward behaviour, but also our hearts and minds. I said it in previous weeks, Proverbs 4.23, Guard your hearts above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your hearts above all else, for it determines the course of your life. The God we seek to imitate is a covenant-making God. God is faithful to his promises. He doesn't change his mind. God has provided the physical relationship in marriage, not only for procreation and enjoyment, but also so that we might minister to one another. We need to look to God to purify and to cleanse the physical relationship in marriage. Remember that marriage is meant to mirror the sacred relationship between God and his church. Sex, therefore, is a very complicated language designed to communicate and to connect. The mystery is expressed in a biblical vision that two persons become one flesh, meaning that sexual relations involve us as whole persons. It's embodied souls and ensouled bodies, as Colbarth once put it. Sex outside... Biblical boundaries does not necessarily involve 
greater guilt than any other form of boundary crossing. But it does involve us more intimately. Sex is unique because it reaches closer to the core than anything else. Paul makes the point to the Corinthians who were who were having sex with temple prostitutes. He administers this kind of moral form of shock treatment almost by explaining to them that you're, you're members of Christ's body. You're joining yourself to these women and, and becoming one flesh with them. He directly compares sexual union with another person to a spiritual joining with God. He says this, 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize that your bodies are actually part of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her body? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Paul gives particular significance to our sexual lives, to our sexual lives, because their intricate, intricate connection with our spiritual lives. He goes on. He says this: Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realise that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? And was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. For you were bought with a high price. So you must obey God with your body. In, in the Bible, God's covenant people, it's also expressed through a binding marriage commitment. We're called to be like God. Let your yes be yes. Let your I will be I will. The fundamental principle underlying the Bible's preservation of sex within marriage is that sex and marriage are inseparable. It's at the very core. It's at the core of the vow you make and the physical act of sex constitutes really what biblical marriage is. Within Christian marriage, we covenant to be like Christ to one another. Paul instructions, Paul's instructions sorry, to, to husbands and wives, Ephesians 5, they're not rights to have been demanded by each marriage partner. In truth, they're, they're a generous responsibility of love within which each of us gives to the other. Being Christ to each other leaves no room for domineering, no room for manipulation. It should lead us towards self-giving as the way of genuine freedom. The biblical vision of relationships says that sexual and emotional intimacy can come to their fullest expression only within the trust and the security of a personal covenant between two people. And so we can create this sort of environment only if we come to be the sort of people who make and keep promises. That's not as simple as it sounds. Society is seeking to erode that from us. We believe that marriage is designed to make us holy, not just to make us happy. Although, of course, we believe that God loves to us to experience joy and happiness. But marriage is designed to glorify God and to point us to him and a lifelong devotion of him. In order to become more like Jesus, that means a continual pursuit of growth and change. 
we, we're to we're to be people that look beyond marriage itself. Spiritual growth is the main theme of marriage, indeed of life. Marriage is simply the context in which we grow our obedience, our character and our pursuit of God. We, we, we need to grasp that in order to be people that seek first the kingdom above all else and he will give you everything you need. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Thank you.